Hi, and welcome to Deep Leadership. I'm your host, John Rennie. Well, just a few words before we get started. I wanted to remind everyone that I do another show called the X Factor Podcast. It's a joint podcast with award-winning author and business coach, John Brubaker. The premise is simple. We identify a category for the show, and each of us separately researches an example of something that in that category that has the X Factor. Now, this could be X Factor brands, X Factor historical figures, animals. Well, you get the point. But we come together in an unscripted and often crazy discussion of what makes these examples really stand out. It's a business leadership podcast that is both fun and educational. So check that out at dxfactorpodcast.com or on any podcast app. The reason I bring it up is that uh, something my co-host likes to say a lot is the best ideas come from outside your industry. Well, today's podcast is a perfect example of that. My guests are Jerry Zimmerman and Daniel Forrester. They looked way outside their industry for inspiration. They studied the business practices of criminal enterprises. They wanted to learn how the American Mafia, the Sinaloa Cartel, Hells Angels, as well as the Crips and Bloods could be so successful for so many years. Their research led to a book called Relentless. It's an amazing read, and I was honored to have them on the show to talk about it. So, are you ready to dive in? Let's get started. Welcome to Deep Leadership. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former Cold War submarine officer who spent 20 plus years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Are you ready for some real world actionable advice from John as well as his expert guests? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. The show starts right now. Welcome to the Deep Leadership Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Jerry Zimmerman and Daniel Forrester. They're the authors of a new book that's bound to turn some heads. It's called Relentless, The Forensics of Mobsters' Business Practices. Jerry and Daniel combine 75 years of Nobel Prize winning economic research with insights from criminal prosecutors to examine how criminal syndicates continue to survive and thrive for decades despite billions of dollars of law enforcement opposition. They have analyzed the leadership principles of criminal organizations and uncovered enduring lessons that every organization needs to adopt. This is going to be a very interesting show. So Jerry and Daniel, welcome. Thanks for having us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, John. So first of all, you both are published authors. You've done a lot of work. But this is a real departure from anything else you've ever done. So tell us a little bit about your backgrounds and then how you came together on this very unique project. Well, let me uh, start. Um, For 45 years, my research, uh, academic research, has focused on the general problem of corporate governance and what we teach in business schools. And the corporate governance problem is how do you, as a leader, attract, retain, and motivate uh, an employee group that is self-interested in in order for them to work towards the goals and the objectives of the organization. And uh, that problem has been, like I said, the focus of my research. And it's been applied to uh, 
lawful companies. Uh, and I've always been interested in uh, organized crime and, and true crime from movies, The Sopranos, down the line. And uh, the question popped in my head about 10 years ago, uh, how do these criminal organizations survive? Uh, how do they solve their corporate governance problem? Uh, and uh, because, you know, they're dealing with very often immoral, violent people. And how do they keep them in line and, and, and drive them uh, in order to pursue the mob's goals? Mm. So uh, that that's how I got started. And I'll turn it over to Dan and he can tell how he got involved in this uh, this pursuit. Well, in 1997, I had the pleasure of spending two years of my life at the University of Rochester, and uh, I was a student of Jerry Zimmerman. His writing, his uh, collaboration with two other giants in the world of economics, uh, Cliff Smith and Jim Brinkley, uh, truly wrote one of the most transformative books I've ever read. It took me from a uh, poet and an English major to the micro-economist that I aspire to be on most days working with CEOs and boards. And uh, I brought Jerry into a client problem I had a couple of years ago. Uh, I wanted his perspective. I just, I, I, when you have a, someone like Jerry, they cut, they cut through the noise very quickly. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the, he solved my problem very, very, it was problematic to me. It was nothing to Jerry Zimmerman. Uh, but I, we started catching up as a mentor and I asked him what he was working on. He told me about this concept that he had been toiling at. And uh, look, I, I'm, I'm a sucker for a Sopranos episode or <laughs> night of good guys. And, uh, and we're and watching the mobsters. And we went back and forth for quite a while because I had, uh, I had an angle to the book on the side of understanding the cultures of these organizations. That is my, one of my areas of expertise. And so we had a chance to reconnect and uh, teacher and student, uh, Decades later, are back thinking about mobsters. It was it was quite delicious. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay. So you know what is it about? I mean, it seems like we have a fascination with these shows. You know, I, I, you know, I, I was addicted to the Narcos uh, series when that came on. And you know, wh what is it that's attractive to us about these organizations? And then, you know, what was the spark that said, you know what, we really need to understand these 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 uh, organizations better. You know, as uh, as we mentioned before, when we got started, I'm, you know, I'm an entrepreneur myself. And as when I watch these shows, I see those entrepreneurial elements, right? The overcoming challenges and just continuing to press forward despite, you know, whether it's uh, a rival gangs or whether it's, um, you know, the government or law enforcement, they just continue to to persist. And, you know, that's what entrepreneurs do. I mean, it's a very similar thing. So is, was that some of the, the spark that led to the interest in diving deeper in, into this, uh, into these organizations? Uh, absolutely. It was the realization that uh, the mafia, the, the five families of New York, uh, really got their uh, supercharge out of the uh, you know, national prohibition against alcohol in the 20s. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they they were fighting each other. They were killing each other. And then they figured out how not to do that. Mm. And they basically persisted through the 50s with, uh, you know, flying under the radar of the federal government. And, uh, and then Giuliani in the 80s uh, 
sent a lot of them to jail, but they still survived. And so what is it? What is, is it about them that they survived, whereas iconic brands like Kodak and JCPenney and Blockbusters, these uh, iconic brands were not able to uh, change as their external environment changed. Well, these mobsters, being so entrepreneurial, when Prohibition went away, they found other rackets. Mm. Uh, when World War II came in, came along, and the government started coop rationing basic coop, uh, basic uh, goods, uh, they started immediately counterfeiting and stealing and bribing and getting these coupon books, and so they 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 have built into their DNA uh, this survival ability that. Uh, Daniel and I wanted to understand better. Mm, that's interesting. John, for me, I, I will tell you the taking your brain and thinking through the values of an organization is something I've spent um, decades now working on. And we're at a time when corporate culture is not only being scrutinized by regulators, but it is the instrument through which you will attract and retain, and this is a zero-sum game, John, and for all entrepreneurs out there, there's a finite amount of think workers available in this country at any moment. And a lot of them that we all crave to have in our businesses are millennials right now, mm. and they're racing. They are racing towards the C-suite. The oldest millennial in our country just turned 40 and can actually now sue for age discrimination. We, we tend to think of them as very young. They're not young anymore. Yeah, they have mortgages right, right now, by the way, and they have they have children. So thinking through the the idea of how do you attract retain talent has been my work. And then Jerry and I to go back and forth and begin to think about what are the core values of the Bloods and the Crips. What do they hold true to? What's their mm -hmm. ethos? What's their credo, as they would say at Johnson and Johnson? And the more we unpacked within it you realize that these cultures are probably one of the reasons, they're not the only one, the four pillars explain, I think, systematically why these organizations last. But Southwest Airlines values, um, one of their core values is, is love and humor, and it's timeless, and it's helped them to be differentiated. At the same time, loyalty, steadfastness, freedom, respect. By the way, John, I hate to tell you, they value immorality. So it's the mm. first organization I've ever studied that I had to get over that and think through, this is something, if you're going to join it and join the culture, you have to value immorality, which these groups do at scale. But there's more beyond immorality. And that was the Inquisition. That's what we wanted to tease out. Mm. Interesting. So let's, let's, get, let's get into it a little bit. So what makes these criminal enterprises so resilient, so per, uh, persistent and able to as you uh, mentioned, Jerry, able to shift when the external pressures come, whether it's rivals, whether it's the government, whether it's law enforcement, what makes them so special? What makes them so relentless? Well, uh, we, we study four different organizations, criminal organizations, and they're very different from each other. The Hells Angels is very different than the Mafia or the Bloods and Crips and the Sinaloa. They, they have different cultures. They have different corporate governance systems. Uh, the mafia of the four is really the most successful in the way I think of it in terms of uh, 
in terms of they don't make as much money as a Sinaloa cartel, but they certainly don't kill themselves at the same rate as the cartels do. So let me just focus on the, the mafia, because uh, to me, they're the most interesting and the most um, self-sustaining. And I think we can learn the most about them. And, and they basically are organized as a, like uh, the McDonald's franchise. Mm. where the store owners, uh, the power of, uh, that we teach in uh, corporate governance of the franchising model is that the store owner has more incentive to run that store and make money than if he was or she was purely a manager because they keep most of the profits and they pass only a small amount up uh, as a franchise fee to the corporation. Well, that's the way the mafia is organized. They run small crews. Uh, each one is headed by a made man or wise guy who's been formally admitted. And these guys are very entrepreneurial and they have very strong incentives to go out and find profitable things to steal or mm -hmm. make money on because they keep most of it. You know, they eat most of what they kill. And so that gives them an, an extra, a very, very strong incentive to go find profitable things to do. And they pass a little bit of, a, of it up as tribute. But in the meantime, when you have a, a family in the, mob, in the mafia that may have 200 made men, each one is running a crew of six or eight guys, um, you know, they, it's a meritocracy. Mm. The, the, the wise guys who are good uh, stay in business, and the wise guys who aren't good get caught and thrown in jail. Mm. And so over a 10 or 15-year period, uh, there's a, a sorting process that goes on. The, the capable, competent mafiosos survive, and they then are promoted to be captains and eventually bosses. And so when you take out a boss or an underboss or even a captain, you have plenty of, of, of people there ready and willing to be promoted into the next job, the higher job. And so, you know, it, it's much like the military where very competent people end up at the top of the organization because there's this very long process of decades of service and uh, everyone knows who the best people are. John, I'd add one of the angles that makes them so extraordinary in the long run, too, is we use the word customer obsession a lot, mm. that you should build your company around solving a problem for a customer. Well, let me tell you, there's not a lot of bureaucracy inside these organizations at that nodal level. Mm. And and by the way, these are not products <laughs> that Jerry and I would wish to participate in. But even right. today, even today, the cartels in um, Mexico um, have made it very, very clear there's going to be legalized marijuana in Mexico. And they have signaled and they are already talking about, first of all, participating in the lawful marketplace for the first mm. time in Mexico. Why would they miss out on that opportunity? Right. Second thing that we learned today, because it was new, it was breaking news, is I shared an article with Jerry, just fascinating on this. Do you think they're going to allow their marijuana to be mediocre or milk toast compared? No, they're already mm -hmm. imagining how can they make the product even more 
in a lawful marketplace. So right. that, that customer centricity, if you will, and there, there we're using something that's becoming highly legalized in the United States. That was astounding. And that idea of customer obsession, just an interesting factoid that Jerry discovered as we were thinking about the title for the book. If you type in the word www.relentless.com, it doesn't take, it doesn't, at first, it doesn't take you to our book, John. It takes, it takes you to Amazon. Amazon. Yeah. And that's because Jeff Bezos actually imagined using the word relentless. So it's everybody listening and please type it, type relentless in twice in order to, to get to our book. But that was not, and that was not shocking in a certain sense because his business has been relentlessly built around us. One click away, one whimsical choice. I mean, I don't know if I've ever even called Amazon, but my goodness, <laughs> you'd think I was having a love affair with the guy based upon how many of the boxes are showing up at the house. So that was that angle of sort of customer centricity, lack of bureaucracy, the decentralized sort of nodal mm. level and valuing that. That's that was that was fascinating to think into. Yeah, I, I really that that really stood out to me. You know, my early corporate career, I worked uh, at ABB. It was a global uh, manufacturing giant, and um, the the uh, we had a uh, CEO at the time that really believed in putting uh, authority down the lowest level. So every operating unit was just like that. So I was actually running a a business, and uh, we had full authority to make any decision. And and so we sent our um, you know our tribute up you know, to corporate. And it was the funnest job I ever had because we had a lot of authority and we had all these people like me, general managers around the globe doing the same thing. And I think where it stopped being fun is when we went into more of a command and control where, you know, the, the, there was, you know, a lot, lot more corporate directives and a lot less autonomy at the lower level. But I can really see where that autonomy in these organizations allow for flexibility, allows for, like you said, if one guy gets taken out, you've got another guy right there. It allows people to rise up in the organization. So it's, there's a lot of benefits to that. So, well, they, well, the, other thing, the other thing that they uh, did, uh, and, and they still do quite well, is that they have very simple, uh, and let's get into the four pillars, besides culture, which we've mm-hmm. already talked about, We've also talked about task assignment or empowerment, which is the second pillar. Well, you need two more pillars here. You can give somebody a task, but if they don't have an incentive to execute that task in the organization's best interest, they're going to shirk. And so one of the things uh, that the the mafia did, uh, and they did it very well, is that they had very simple, straightforward performance measures. You know, unlike a lot of corporations I've seen and been on boards where uh, supervisors and CEOs think that they need to have five or six performance measures, yeah. which is confusing, yeah. the mafia kept it simple. Money and don't get caught. <laughs> simple. <Okay? laughs> you don't need a lot of accountants to compute those two things. <laughs> and the other thing they had was a very straightforward uh, reward and punishment system. The mm. reward was 75% you keep. And if you if you uh, blab, if you uh, are disloyal, you're going to get whacked. Yep. <laughs> and, and so they ran things very simply and straightforward that these guys understood. And again, I think the big mistake the companies make that I, and people, companies that I've consulted with is that it, I've never seen a company 
design a comp plan where they only have one or two performance measures. Mm. You know, you're a manager. Okay, we're going to reward you on sales growth, on profits, on um, recruiting, and on diversity, and on this and on that. And before you know it, your man, uh, the manager who's being managed on all of these things, doesn't know what to focus on. Right, right. I saw that a lot in in, in my 22 years in corporate life. Was you know, like I at one point I was incentivized on growth in South America, which I had no impact on. So I was like, all right, well, you know, if, if we hopefully I hope we do well, you know, I mean, there's nothing I could do to help. Yeah. It. So, yeah, to, to add on to that, you know, the, the precursor before the four pillars is this timeless economic principle that human beings are four things simultaneously. We're resourceful. We're evaluative. We're maximizing and we're individuals mm. and individuals, especially in the sense of I, Jerry, I often say when I brief that to my CEOs, we're born alone and we die alone. And we have a lot of things that we crave selfishly. And that's that self-interest, by the way, mm. whether you're running a group of mobsters or you're running Goldman Sachs, that is the timeless economic principle that every leader has to confront. Mm. How do you take self-interested people who value golf, they value leisure, they value working less, they value one more dollar, one more beer, one more day of vacation. It's endless. I I had a CEO the other day who told me, a peer of mine in a smaller company, he was astounded that the millennials were working just on the nose 40 hours a week. And by golly, my leadership team's putting in 60. And I said, the delta between your 60 hours and their 40 hours is a utility curve in their brains that you have to discover because mm. they don't value giving you 20 more hours. Right, right. They value doing other things with their time. Yeah. And that's something. And it's really hard for leaders to get. Why don't they respond? Why don't they model my behaviors? Because they're self-interested. We yeah. all are. Our premise in this book is if, if leaders of organizations take and confront the four pillars simultaneously, and we're asking people to do system level thinking here, you can't just say we're going to have a great culture don't worry about performance evaluation. You can't just say, we're going to be highly decentralized. Let's get out of John's way. Our premise here is you have to think of this as four pillars holding together as you, after you set your strategy, that gives you the highest probability of aligning this problem called selfishness. I love it. And, and bef- so I, I want to make sure we don't gloss over that. Let's explain the four pillars, let, the, the four pillars as, as it's laid out in the book. What, what are those, Jerry? Uh, well, the, it's what we teach in MBA programs. It is, okay. how do you empower people? What tasks do people have? What's in, in the basic device that we use to do that is the org chart. Mm. You know, an organization chart basically defines who's in what box and what do right. they do in that box. Right. Then you have performance measures. Uh, if, if, if somebody is responsible for sales in uh, the United States, they should not be measured on sales in South America. Mm, Exactly. (laughs) The third pillar is, okay, how are you going to reward and punish these people? Mm. And companies have very complicated uh, reward systems to try and, to Daniel's point, give people more than just money. People value more than money. And so, you know, when we think about performance measures, we typically think of compensation plans. You know, how Mm -hmm. are we going to pay you? But there's also 
A vast number of other ways that people get rewarded in companies. It is through titles, through offices. Uh, yep. What sort of career path am I looking at? How interesting of a job opportunity do I have? There's punishments in these organizations. There's the motions. There is timeouts. There's all sorts of things the way people get, get punished. And then the fourth pillar, which was the biggest surprise to me as an economist, was that these cultures are just as important as these other three pillars are. Because uh, it's, I likened it to um, the military academies. The cultures in these military academies, and I have a number of friends who've been through them and are, were officers, are incredibly strong. And these people are still involved in their alumni groups. And uh, because of the culture in, the, in the, these academies is, is so strong. And it's the same in the mafia in terms of the strength of it. People would wait 10 or 15 years uh, to get admitted to the mob. And we have one quote in the book where a guy said, the day I was made a made man was the most important day in my life. I've been mm. looking forward to this for 40 years or 30 years, ever since I was a little kid. And so how, how you construct the culture, and uh, we'll, we'll get into that more, can be just as, if not more important than the other three pillars. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Is your boss a jerk? I understand you're in the hospital, but I'm going to need you to come in today. Do they lack any ability to actually lead people? Oh, it's fine. I'll, I'll just find somebody else that can do it, okay? John is offering a new service just for you. For only $10, he will anonymously mail a copy of his best-selling book, I Have the Watch, to your boss with a personal note. Go to IHaveTheWatch.com and enter the discount code BOSS at checkout. Deep Leadership is brought to you by my friends at the Bottom Gun Coffee Company. Bottom Gun is owned and operated by U.S. submarine veterans, and no one knows coffee better than the men and women who serve long hours keeping watch under the sea. Bottom Gun Coffee Company has a variety of coffee blends designed to keep you moving. From Ahab's Revenge Extremely Strong Coffee to their morning blend, Bottom Gun purchases only premium certified organic coffee beans from all over the world to create the finest tasting coffee you will ever experience. It's what I drink every day. Bottom Gun is offering a discount to the listeners of Deep Leadership. Go to BottomGunCoffeeCompany.com and enter the discount code DEEP at checkout. Bottom Gun Coffee, the taste that's qualified. As you were going through the research for the book and, and looking, you know, at these stories and these, you know, these organizations, what were some stories that really stood out to you that had really good direct parallels to to business and and you know the, the kind of things that we deal as business leaders? Dan, Daniel, why don't you take that? Oh, so many different stories. I mean, I think about <laughs> the uh, the founding of the Hell's Angels and and Sonny Barger and. Uh, the creation of and that culture is a pretty unique culture and their organization is very different, by the way, they protect, they protect the brand. That mm. shocked me. They, you can't just take the brand and the logo of the hell's angels and whimsically do what you want with it. They actually have recourse because uh, there is some centralization, but to Jerry's point, there's high decentralization mm. and there's a camaraderie, I guess a, 
Another sort of meta piece that ripped across these organizations, these are all male groups, by the mm. way. We, yeah. we found no evidence of, of female mobsters. Uh, I'm not, not to say there are, there's no female relationships within these groups, but it's, it's a lot of men craving time to hang out with one another. Because uh, they also get, you know, as we said earlier, we get utility out of a lot of different things. I know Jerry Zimmerman, if he wasn't on this phone call with us right now, he, he, he does prefer to play one more round of golf to one less round of golf. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. But with these organizations, they get time to not only be seen, but that, you know, we, we thought a lot about it and we had to write about it. There's an absence of a lot of these leaders coming up of an absence of a father figure, mm. of male figures in their life. And it's interesting. I was looking uh, over your shoulder there. You have a sign on your wall that says, take time to be thankful. Yeah. I remind, one, of the, one of the pieces that organizations have to get right that they tend to get wrong, two things. Most of the American workforce, John, I hate to tell you, is miserable. Yeah, no, I know. I write about it. <laughs> so. And you sit there and say, that's despite learning with the best of economics from men like Jerry Zimmerman. And you sit there and say, what is that? What? People don't leave companies. They leave places where they don't feel valued. They don't feel heard. Their endless needs are never discussed. Um, it's interesting when we, we measure culture in our clients' companies, no one ever asks me for more bureaucracy, hierarchy, or, or harassment uh, mm. for measuring culture. What they ask me for is more accountability, more recognition, more career development, and, and by the way, that recognition piece is massive. We were astonished to look inside these cultures and discover they're pretty good at recognizing one mm. another. Yeah, look at what yeah. Gary talked about, that moment of 40 years. That, that's a moment of validation. That yeah. doesn't cost you a lot that day, by the way. Yeah. It yeah. doesn't cost you a lot. So I, I think those are just some of the, that's sort of the meta story, if you will. I'll, I'll leave it to Jerry to talk about a couple of the specific mobster stories. Uh, let me uh, give you a couple of stories which I, I found interesting. A lot of companies talk about um, product line extensions, you know, how do we yeah. uh, take our, our core competency in this in one area and, and, and uh, exploit it. And Amazon has probably been absolutely the best in this, where they started out as an online book store mm -hmm. uh, that they developed this platform uh, that they were selling books through, and and Bezos said, "Well, I can sell other stuff on, yeah. on here." And uh, they extended that. Now, you know, they're now dominating uh, book publishing. They're now dominating um, uh, web services because they they had such a huge web mm -hmm. uh, platform that they got really good at running server farms. And uh, the mafia has done. Similar product line extensions. They uh, got involved in. Uh, well, they were always good at extorting people, and uh, they got themselves into running unions. They they corrupted the unions. They got their hands on the pension plans. They then did a product line extension, which I found fascinating. I didn't really know of this, but once they were in control of the unions, they then were doing business with. Uh, the companies that were unionized. And once they got uh, involved in these companies, they then were able to run cartels. Mm. So, for example, uh, the, the concrete labor union 
uh, gave them access to all of the concrete companies. And they went to these concrete companies and said, I'll tell you what, we're going to run a a cartel uh, and we're going to fix bids across all of the concrete contracts. And so, you know, that was one thing. Another um, entrepreneurial activity was uh, El Chapo, who was running the Cinema Hotel. Mm. Uh, he was sitting there and he was watching what was going on in the U.S. And he saw all of this oxycotton uh, codeine uh, um, problem that was in the U.S. and all of these addicts that were being created by these pill mills basically being run out of Florida initially. And he knew that that was going to be shut down. So he had a, a large supply of low-quality Mexican-produced heroin uh, that could not compete with the Colombians. But it, So he brought in some Colombian uh, chemists that had this big R&D effort to convert the low-quality Mexican heroin into something called China White, which he knew there was going to be a huge market in the U.S. once these uh, addicts couldn't get their their pills. And so, again, you know, that's not that dissimilar than what Beatles was doing. They were entrepreneurial, and there was just a huge amount of profits to be made here. Yeah, so they're watching trends and and adjusting the business model to, to take advantage of the opportunities. That's exactly right. As the as we published the book um, this month, uh, and we had a we, Jerry and I follow the alerts. I I have a Google alert on the word mobster every day, which I I've had wow. for years now. So that's been pretty fun to just read that. But it was not shocking to see a notification from Interpol out of Europe <clears throat> reminding the world and especially enforcement in the United States that there will be a black market for the most precious product on earth right now, which is the vaccines for Mm. COVID-19. And Interpol had to already share globally that they're picking up evidence of what business do you think mobsters want to be in right there, John? A black market was sure to be found. I mean, it's it's literally the, the, you know, we can talk about Bitcoin all we want. It's the vaccines that is going to help our society to get back on its feet. So, we, we've been watching that behavior. Jerry and I also were observing during the lockdowns uh, in, in some of these groups, how they help to enforce lock, lockdowns in local, in local perspectives. Why? They have connections to the communities. We talk about community activism. These groups come from their community. So there's right, a self-interest right. in preserving the community. They're rational. They, they, that's bad for business, by the way, right? Yeah, it doesn't help yeah. to have commerce flowing. So I guess it just it, it to me it's just it's just been endlessly fascinating to th- we every Forbes article you read or Fortune article or Inc magazine article they're all wonderful but they're yeah. all talking about nine ways that that Jeff Bezos does this right right it's the same yeah it's the same uh, we're, we're fascinated with the same stories and that's oh, why oh. I liked what I liked about this book is you were sort of, sort of looking at a completely different group of people, organizations. They were, they were organizations there to make money, very similar to our businesses. And yet, you know, I was just shocked at how many commonalities were between these criminal enterprises and our, you know, our attempts at business and our attempts at being entrepreneurial. So, you know, the closest I'd ever seen prior to a study like this was General McChrystal was very gracious to us. And he read the book. Uh, I think it came back as feedback, Jerry, in two days. 
Um, wow. And it didn't surprise me. I've, I've, I've got, I know General McChrystal just a little bit, but this is a man who during the war in Iraq had to confront the fact that Al Qaeda was organized in a franchise model. Oh, yeah. Allocating yeah. decision rights at the nodal yeah. level with incentives that involved their incentives are they're going to get to go to heaven and hang out with virgins, apparently, because that's that's called payday. Right. And when McChrystal comes in, we are using very hierarchical structures. And so he posits as he starts to study them that if they don't, if our military doesn't begin to come, become like them, we're never going to defeat them. Mm. So it, it wasn't shocking to Jerry and I to get his very gracious review on the back of the book. But there's, again, even a group as nefarious as ISIS, you have to look at it and say, structurally, decision rights, performance evaluation, the laws of economics were even at play there, and it's timeless. That's why we think these lessons are so useful for the lawful leaders and managers that are listening to this podcast. Absolutely. And that and actually lead to the next question is, you know, who is this book written for and what do you hope people will take away from this? It's, uh, it's written for managers, leaders, people who want to run organizations. Uh, it's uh, a, a, really a bait and switch mm. uh, book in the sense that it looks like it's going to be about the mafia or these organized crimes, but it, it's really teaching the basic fundamental economic principles in, in a way that we hope people will take away from them uh, these these concepts of self-interest and how do you use the four pillars to construct these uh, these incentives? The uh, the other thing that is remarkable about these organizations is that lawful managers have a whole bevy of institutions that they take for granted mm. that help them in their day-to-day -day business. For example. Banks, right, right. financial transactions, yeah. courts and dispute resolutions, insurance companies to you know, reduce or share the risk. I mean, there's just countless numbers of, of organizations, institutions we take for granted that these criminal organizations have to have alternative ways of doing it. Hmm. And so, for example... Uh, the mafia boss spends most of his time on dispute resolutions mm. in the firm, yeah. or in the family, because they can't, you know, if two captains get in a fight over whose territory this is, or they did a deal and one of them reneged, uh, they can't go to the court systems to resolve that. So they go to the boss. Mm. The boss understands that keeping peace in the family is good for business. It's no good to have your captains killing each other. Mm, it's, it's, re it's really interesting. I'm writing about this in my next book, this idea of internal conflict in organizations. And uh, and it seems, you know, it's it's almost a sport in big corporations, this internal fighting. And, and there's, a, there's not enough of the uh, somebody in charge saying, stop it. You know, this is not helpful. This is not helping us bring money to the bottom line, right? It seems to kind of go uncontrolled in a lot of companies. At least I saw that in my experience. Yes. And so I, you know, I think that's a big problem. It's great to see, I guess, these uh, criminal groups have figured that out, right? Stop fighting inside. Let's let's go out and make money, right? 
Well, the mafia's done that. The uh, Hell's Angels have a dispute resolution mechanism uh, in in inside the, the Hell's Angels. Uh, it's fascinating that the Sinaloa cartels or the Mexican cartels have not been able to figure out how to do this. Mm, yeah, that's uh, true. Uh, and uh, the Bloods and Crips haven't figured out how to do it. Mm. So it, it's not an easy thing to do, but it's it's useful to look at those organizations that have done it better than others. You know, it's interesting, John, You you uh, this little piece to tuck away in your book here. The concept and culture of fear comes up a lot. There's mm. fear. There's fear in every culture, right? And these groups, by the way, um, have a different level of fear because they're literally, you know, you don't quite know on any one day how the, the day is going to go. So you have a wicked focus, right? Yeah. Let me tell you where fear exists. And I'll, I'll pick on a company. I've never worked for them, but uh, at a Goldman Sachs. If I went into a Goldman Sachs and I measured their culture, and I'm talking about norms, values, behaviors, I might get words coming back to me from the surveys and diagnostics I use like hierarchy, bureaucracy, silo mentality. Now, the regulator side, the lawyers in the building at Goldman Sachs would say, that's fabulous. We don't want rogue traders. <laughs> this is what we, we want. <laughs> we, we, we want process. The 25-year-old millennial absolutely considers that an affront mm. because she came out of Harvard. She's smart as hell. And she was promised an entrepreneurial environment, and yet there's fear in a system. Hierarchy is fear. Hierarchy mm. means I have to ask Jerry permission before I go to you. Right. So I just think about this concept of entropy a lot. Every organization has entropy, John. Mm. Every the question is, do you have a toxic amount of it that's sucking up the capacity of the culture to live out the positive values? Mm. These organizations, I'm never going to get to measure the culture, I promise you, of our mobsters. But there's something through the mechanisms of the forcing of even that dispute resolution that takes the amount of fear and then knocks it down pretty quickly. There's mm. something for lawful leaders to learn there. Mm. Yeah. So that's a, you know, you touched, that's one thing I was thinking about is, you know, as you go through the book, as you do your research, as you see what, what these other organizations are doing, what are some positive leadership qualities that, you know, folks like myself, lawful leaders, what can we take away from looking at these, you know, crime families, these crime syndicates? Well, the, the last chapter of the book and, and uh, early drafts of the book, people ask me, well, how do I apply this stuff? <laughs> yeah, and legally. <laughs> so we wrote a last chapter, which is a step-by-step -step approach mm. to, uh, to make your organization better. And, and, uh, some of the takeaways, the key takeaways are that you simply can't copy other companies' best practices, that one size doesn't fit all. Every organization has a unique strategy, a unique mission, and therefore it has to have a, its own unique set of four pillars. The four pillars that work in the mafia are not going to work in the American Red Cross. True. <laughs> Uh, the second uh, takeaway is that the world is always changing, and, and 2020 was a prime example of that. As the world changes with new technology, with new uh, uh, government regulations coming and going, and new taxation, and on and on, new competitors coming in, 
That means that every leader has to be constantly thinking about, do I have the right strategy? And if I don't have the right strategy, what is the right strategy that we have to move to? And when you move to a new strategy, you often have to redesign the four pillars because you now have to change task assignments Absolutely. and all those things. So, so that's the second one. And then the fourth one, or the third uh, important takeaway is that leaders have to constantly look at their four pillars and ask the question, what's right and what's wrong? I, for several years on a couple of different public companies, I was chairman of the comp committee. Mm. And every year the CEO was coming in with a new comp plan because the old one wasn't working right. And so these four pillars are work in process that yeah. you always have to be thinking about and learning about what what worked well and what didn't. Mm. And I'll let just say that, that Daniel compliment that. That last chat, I would only add that we, we took it one step just as we closed out the book. Um, you know, to all the listeners listening in there, what the attention, the management attention, the top leadership gives to what are the norms, values, and behaviors happening in this company? First of all, are we modeling them? <laughs> yeah. Because that's either a plaque on the wall, as my good friend, Colonel David Sutherland said, or they're in your heart and your head and they're incentivized within culture can be a 10 to one return on investment from the management attention you give it, or 100%. it will destroy the greatest ambition of the most of the most wildly imaginative entrepreneur. And you get to set that tone from the top, from the moment you create it. I'm actually birthing a second company right now. And um, I'm working with just a small ad hoc group of people. It's a tech-based company, but I'm already thinking into how do we, there's a little microculture emerging here. And I want people to have ownership and accountability. So the last chapter is our best attempts to, help leaders to apply this. Uh, and in, in the end, you know, when you think about an organization like uh, the Hells Angels, they value freedom. One of the things I beg my leaders to do, have a few core values. Just like Jerry says, let's not have 19 KPIs to measure the CEO against. I'd rather you have one core value mm -hmm. that you stood for and sets of behaviors underneath it. Just have one that would delight a customer and watch what happens. We over, we just, we have, we have, there's a phrase that was taught to me, unrewarded complexity was a phrase, one of my students. Absolutely. Yeah. We do this, we're, Americans do this at scale. Simplify, simplify. Yeah. And by the way, don't choose integrity as your core value. Don't be the 87,000th company. I consider integrity, it's called oxygen to me. You right. should be fired right. if you're, if you lie on your time card and you steal from the company, we don't need to declare that. But you should think through a differentiated core value something mm. that only your company can stand for. That's what these groups do so well. Not values that. that you can import, but unique identifiers for your company. I love that. It's powerful. After making a transition from 22 years in big companies to my own company for the last five years, simplicity, it's been fun. I mean, it's been fun to just boil things down to the simple, the basics. This is what we have to get done. You know, this is who's responsible. It's very, very nice to get to... Uh, to get rid of a lot of the garbage that kind of weighed me down in the corporate world and kind of focus on what's really important today, you know. Um, uh, I'd, I'd write a paper or do a uh, do a test for 
Jerry or ask him a question, he wouldn't say to me, Daniel, you need to make this more complex. Ne- <laughs> never once, never <laughs> once did he say that to me. No, not at all. Not at all. So this is great. So how can people find out more about both you, this book, and, and anything else coming, coming uh, you know, from this book? I don't know if there's anything additional happening, but uh, how can people find out more? Uh, they can visit my website, which is geraldzimmerman.com. It's uh, J-E-R-O-L-D. Everyone misspells Gerald <laughs> Zimmerman. Uh, and Daniel has a couple of other websites, uh, that he can tell you about, but like there, everything else in the world, it's all available on Amazon. Ah, that's true. Yes. So Thanks, got, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> but, yeah, um, relentless, type in relentless and then type it again into Amazon. Uh, DanielForrester.com with two R's and through T-H-R-U-U-E is uh, where we publish a lot of information on, on culture. And also say to your leaders out there too, uh, Jerry and I uh, do do a keynote speech Okay. That you could, uh, they folks can consume. It's a hell of an interesting break from the monotony of hearing about the next, you know, the next person you expect to see on a keynote stage, because we're going to teach you uh, the riveting view into the world of mobsters, and we're going to teach the good guys in the room, good guys, quote unquote, John, um, how, how to how to really apply these principles. So keep an eye out for that. Okay, that's great. Yeah, that's the kind of keynote speech you want to hear, right? You want to hear about gangsters and, you know, hell's angels. Uh, You don't want to hear about KPIs, right? No. (laughs) So that's great. Well, um, thank you, uh, Jerry and and Daniel. I think this is a great book, and I'll hold it up since for the YouTube folks out here. That's a big red cover. You can't miss it. It's called Relentless, uh, The Forensics of Mobsters Business Practices. And uh, I think it's a phenomenal read. And I think that um, I think it's really creative that you've taken this uh, kind of a shift and, and looked at a, a completely different set of organizations and and how we can learn from them. So I think it's a very powerful way to teach some really basic, important lessons about leadership and about running a business. So thank you for being on the show and thank you for sharing all your wisdom. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share so we can continue to build a world with better bosses. Until next time, this is John Rennie saying take care and lead well. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information and updates, please visit our website at www.deepleadershippodcast.com or johnsrenny.com. Until next time, take care.